from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Happy Thanksgiving week. Um, church full of young families, you can tell when it's a holiday week. So, because everybody goes home and travels to their parents' homes, um, which is great. Um, our preaching passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 14. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 14. I'm going to read it all for us, uh, and then we will dive into our sermon. Let me, let me read this for us. Hear the word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who's in Babylon, who has likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, uh, no matter the kind of week we've had, we can always come and hear the truth of your word and be reminded that your promises do last, that you will hold us fast, you will never let us go, that your grip on us is way stronger than our grip on you. So Lord, I thank you for that. I pray we're reminded of that today. This Thanksgiving week is as time with our families is coming. Maybe that brings joy. Maybe that brings sorrow. Maybe that brings stress, anxiety, whatever. I just pray for the peace of Christ now to just surround us. Pray for the Holy Spirit now to open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and hear and believe the gospel and walk in it. May we walk in the gospel, not perfectly, oh God, but we walk in it humbly with a heart of repentance when we do fail. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your restoration towards us in Christ in those moments we do fail. Praise you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, I often, often uh, wonder sometimes what uh, Peter was thinking when he sat down, Peter, the author of this letter, when he sat down around that charcoal fire with Jesus in John chapter 21. 
know, Peter's life for the three years prior to that encounter in John 21 had been filled with a lot of really high highs and a lot of really low lows. I'm sure there was much joy mixed with terror when Jesus called him to follow him with his brother Andrew in Matthew chapter 4, leaving all they'd known behind, their nets and their boats, to follow this man who promised to teach them how to fish for men. Now I have to think as he listened to the words of Jesus on the side of the mountain in Matthew chapter 5, words like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I have to think that when he hears those words, he's somewhat struck to the heart. For meekness is not what characterized Peter, but brashness and arrogance, oftentimes. You know, he'd seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law with a simple touch of his hand. He had experienced deep faith in Christ that compelled him to step out of a boat in the middle of a raging storm on the sea, walk on water. And yet that great faith was quickly replaced with great doubt. As he saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the wind and felt the wind, his clear vision of Jesus on the water became blurry and he began to sink. I'm sure many of us have been there before. Great faith, quickly followed by great doubt. Great highs and great lows. Now, the longer he followed Jesus, the, the more we see that he assumed a leadership role in the company of the 12 disciples. He was a natural-born leader, and that was Peter, when the other disciples were still a little confused as to who Jesus was and Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? It was Peter that stepped forward and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. This answer was so correct that Jesus had replaced his name Simon with his new name Peter. Rock, firm, strong. For Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Yet literally six verses later, right after Jesus had renamed Peter, Peter, when Jesus predicted his own death, it was Peter that pulled Jesus aside, this newly identified rock, this newly named person, and rebuked Jesus for thinking about death. To which Jesus then responds and calls Peter, newly named Peter, Satan. For Satan, in that moment, was using Peter to tempt Jesus to bypass the cross. Great highs, great lows. You know, Peter literally seen Jesus transformed in front of his eyes from lowly peasant to God in glory, the transfiguration. He'd seen Moses and Elijah show up and speak with Jesus on the side of that mountain. He'd seen Jesus heal the sick and drive out demons and raise people from the dead. Yet despite all of these things, Jesus told him in the great, his greatest moment of testing and trial that Peter would fail. That he would deny that he even knew Jesus. Peter objects, even if everybody else here falls away, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. When Jesus is arrested, he's taken to the high priest's house. Peter and another disciple follow from a distance into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter, when questioned three times, about his association with Jesus by those around this charcoal fire. The last one being a servant girl asking him, surely you are associated with that man from Galilee. I can tell by your accent. Peter cowers in fear, denies all three times, even knows who Jesus is. Jesus is tortured alone, he suffers alone, he dies alone, save John and Mary, his mother. Peter is nowhere to be found. 
The man who led this ragtag group of disciples who said he would die with Jesus if he had to, he had vanished. He's gone. Nowhere to be seen. Great highs, great lows. Jesus is buried. Peter goes back to what he knew before Jesus ever came into his life, fishing. And side note, it's still true that many men use fishing to avoid dealing with trauma in their lives. But, you know, that's another, another sermon for another day. But Peter goes fishing. And he and five of the other disciples, they stay out all night and they catch nothing. And the next morning as they're understandably disappointedly sailing back to shore, they see somebody has built another fire. And then someone calls to them from the shore and says, children, did you catch any fish? I'm sure they annoyingly answered no. And this stranger, they can't tell who it is, he responds, well, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. They do it. And sure enough, the nets, they can't even contain all the fish they caught. Peter immediately knows it's Jesus. It's Jesus on the shore for this was exactly the same thing that happened when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. So Peter jumps in the water. He leaves the other disciples to actually haul the fish like by themselves. He doesn't even do that. And he swims to shore. And I'm not sure what words are spoken when Peter and Jesus lock eyes for the first time on that shore. As Peter smells the scent of that charcoal fire Jesus had made. The same charcoal fire that he had denied Jesus around three days earlier. As he smells the smell, sees Jesus, who was once dead but alive again, literally standing here before him. I'm not sure what kind of feelings of pain and shame or guilt may have welled up in his heart at that moment. Knowing that in the last moments of Jesus' life, Peter was not there. The first words we have recorded in the Gospel of John are not words from Peter. They're not him issuing an apology. They're not him seeking for forgiveness or asking for an explanation as to how Jesus was dead and now he's standing right here before him. It's none of those things. The first words spoken are actually those of Jesus. A radical invitation. He says, bring me some fish and make him breakfast. Instead of heaping on guilt and condemnation in that moment in an act of gracious hospitality, Jesus invites Peter once again back to the table to dine with him around a charcoal fire, a fire that was once a place of great shame has now become a place of great restoration. Three times, with compassion and kindness in his eyes, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter has a chance once again to experience the mercy and the grace of God in his master, Jesus Christ. Great highs and great lows. Now, Peter was transformed from an arrogant leader to a humble servant. And that humility would presumably characterize him the rest of his days. You know, the theme running through these 14 verses here in chapter 5 of 1 Peter as we wrap up our sermon series today is humility. Humility that began with Christ, as Peter's already established in other parts of his letter here. 
and humility that trickles down to Peter, to leaders in the church, and then to members of the church. C.J. Mahaney said, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And oftentimes humility is forged in the fires of failure. God takes our lowest moments, as he did Peter's. These moments where we are caught in our own self-assuredness. And he uses them to teach us more and more our dependence upon him. Transforms our sinful self-confidence into radical self-forgetfulness. And Peter breaks up this passage on humility into two sections here. The first five verses discuss humility among elders, leaders in the church. And six verses, six through 11, the next six verses describe the humility that should characterize the entire church, all of us. So let's look at it. Let's look at it this morning as we wrap up our sermon series today in this letter of 1 Peter. So let's start, let's start with the elders. Let's start with the elders. If you're taking notes, write this down. Elders humble themselves to shepherd the body. Elders humble themselves to shepherd the body. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again if you're following along. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, the term elder in the New Testament is also translated other places as overseer or sometimes even as pastor. You know, elders do not necessarily have to be older. There's a reason many times they are older. It's because they've been through the fires of testing and come out on the other side in life. Here, our elders are not older. I mean, I'm getting older. I feel older. I'm 37, though, but that's not normal in a lot of churches. But although we may feel old for a variety of reasons, typically elders in local churches will be older, again, because they've been through life and they've come out on the other side faithful to Christ. They have scars of living in this broken world that come out on the other end. Now, Peter's humility begins to shine forth here when he exhorts other elders as a fellow elder. That's what verse 1 says. You know, he doesn't use his position in the church as a platform to promote his own status and standing. Rather, he begins his charge by saying, I'm not above you. I'm not over you. I am one of you. We are in this together. You know, Peter could have written this portion of the text from the position of an authority of being an apostle. Right? One of the twelve who had walked, literally walked with Jesus. But he chooses to put himself on the same level as those he is exhorting and encouraging here. He saw these leaders in the local church as an extension of his own leadership. And it's common work together that they all share. Not just one person shares, but they all share. These elders share. It's a task they cannot do alone. And then in verse 2, he begins giving his exhortation. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And no doubt Peter's use here of, of shepherding language is derived from his last conversation with Jesus, the one we just talked about. You know, when, when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter responds with, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend the flock. You know, the shepherd sheep imagery runs throughout the entire Bible. You know, many leaders in Israel were shepherds. Jacob. Moses, David, think about Psalm 23, right? The most famous psalm in all the Bible, probably. 
Believers and unbelievers alike know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Yes, the Lord's my shepherd. Psalm 95, we're called the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. You know, God is our shepherd. We are his sheep. You now, leaders in Israel were also called shepherds. They were meant to emulate God and how they led their people. And Jesus fulfilled all these things uh, the shepherd leaders of Israel failed to do in the Old Testament by coming and saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the ultimate shepherd. I shepherd you as all the leaders before me should have, but did not. I am that good shepherd. You know, Jesus had given that shepherd call to Peter in John 21, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And now Peter's passing it down to the elders in the local churches. Continue to feed the sheep. Continue to feed the lambs. And Peter gives four ways, four ways elders are to carry out the task of shepherding in the local church. And I'm going to give it to you. First, elders shepherd willingly. Shepherd willingly. Verse 2 again. Let's read it again. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. This denotes a, a picture of one with a ready mind and a forward spirit. It's not language, uh, being, the language being used isn't just a willingness to serve as an elder, but it's a, a zeal, a passion to lead the church. Not an overconfidence, but a passion to serve the local church in this way. It's a passion to see Christ get glory and the church built up. You know, serving as an elder takes much time and energy and sacrifice. Uh, the elders were in my house last Monday night, and we ended up meeting for like four hours, which is not normal. Um, and I go to bed at like 9.30, all right? So I'm like dying. It's like 11.30, and I'm dying. But we needed to serve the body. And they willingly came, and they sacrificed their time and their energy and their sleep and their time with their families to be there serving you. And oftentimes, this, this, uh, every time, this role is voluntary. You know, they choose to do this. They don't enter in with a begrudging attitude, but they choose to do this. You know, the last person you want serving as an elder is a guy who's grumpy and bitter every time he has to come to an elders meeting or show up on a Sunday because he feels like his arms twisted to accept this call rather than entering into it willingly, right? So that's the first thing. First thing. Second, elders should shepherd sacrificially. Sacrificially. In verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You know, we don't want a bunch of dudes sitting in the back room smoking pipes and counting gold coins like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? And that's not what we want as elders. Trust me, there's, there is, uh, apart from me, I'm the only paid elder here. There is no financial gain from being an elder at Emmanuel Church, all right? Thank you for paying my salary. I appreciate that. Um, but it's not lucrative. <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate it. I'm so grateful that I can support my family. But these guys aren't being paid. You know, they serve as elders seeking heavenly rewards, not any earthly, tangible, fading rewards. <coughs> you know, there's very little earthly incentive for these guys other than just the joy of serving the body, the fulfillment of being used by God, you know, those intangible things. You know, they're not getting, like, tithing breaks when they come on to serve as elders, right? Like, you get three years of not tithing. Congratulations, you win. Um, that doesn't exist. That's not what happens. It's a great sacrifice on their time, on their energy, on their mind, on their hearts. These guys serve them, but not just them, but their families as well. And there are times where 
A wife is without a husband for a portion of the night. Kids are without a father for a portion of the night or the week. It's all-encompassing sacrifice from elders and their spouses and their families. So they sacrifice, serve shepherds sacrificially. Third, elders shepherd gently, gently. Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And there are so many examples we could give right here of, of pastors and leaders abusing their power. And that is not what Christ has called us to. Elders are not to abuse or use their authority to be harsh with others. You know, elders should never use threats or emotional intimidation to get what they want or desire. They should never flaunt their status or standing in a local church, but use it to make Christ look beautiful. Elders should understand more than anybody else the depth of their own sin and the depth of the grace of God. If anyone ever campaigns to be an elder, which I've seen that before, and it's gross, man, but if anybody ever campaigns to be an elder here, they probably don't understand sin, humility, and grace like they should in those moments. You know, elders use their power and authority to serve as examples to the church. Now, men in the role of elder are men that our church believes are worth following and emulating. So the church has put them forward in these positions and said, follow this man as he follows Christ. He doesn't follow perfectly. None of us do. But watch this man as he walks in repentance. Watch him as he fails and see how it is to repent and follow Christ more closely. Called to be examples in all avenues of life. Not perfect, not perfect examples, but mature and steadfast examples. And then fourth, they shepherd hopefully. 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 That's, you know, not hopefully like something's going to come fast, but hope fully. Uh, verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. I said this before, there's no real earthly gain in being an elder. But those serving as elders do hope for a future reward. And the basis of their future reward is that Jesus, our chief shepherd, is coming back to rescue his church. Edmund Clowney says the chief shepherd goes before his flock, first to the cross and then to the throne. The elders care for and suffer for and sacrifice for the flock in order to receive a crown of victory that will never fade. For this is what Christ has done. The elders are prepared to shepherd by keeping their eyes fixed on the coming of the chief shepherd. And this fills them with hope. That as dark as the burdens may get in our body, that Christ is coming back to bring deliverance for us. And then in verse 5, Peter lays out the response of the church to the leading of the elders. We follow obediently. We follow obediently. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Through the humble response to the elders, and assuming, big caveat here, but assuming the leaders of the body are leading us towards Christ, out of humility. That's, that's the huge caveat. Not leading us away from Christ, leading us towards Christ. But assuming that's happening, 
The humble response to the elders is that the body will follow them as they follow Christ. You know, this reference to you who are younger here is probably not specifically meant to mean younger people only, but more meant to encompass all men and women who are not in the role of elder at that time. So just as not all elders may be older, so not all younger here may be younger than the elders. And at the same time, and hear me when I say this, at the same time, this is not a silent, blind following. It's not a following that says, hey, you just lead us wherever you want, elders, and we'll follow, no questions asked. You just take us wherever you want. That's foolishness, right? So this is a following that's rooted in confidence that the elders are following Jesus. It's confidence that like the good shepherd leads us all, that the elders are leading the church in a willing, sacrificial, gentle, hope-filled way to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. You have every freedom in the world to ask any question you want to ask of your elders. We, are, we want to be as transparent with you as we possibly can be, and honest with you as we possibly can be, which is hopefully it's full of um, But you don't have to put a blindfold on and just follow us over a cliff. Please ask questions. Please push back. But at the end of the day, as we're going to get to in a second, our posture should both be humility towards one another. So let's do that. Let's talk about that. Peter shifts his conversation, and we will too. On the hinge, the hinge of this text is God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the hinge on which the text swings. He starts talking to everybody here, not just elders anymore. He quotes this, this quote here is from Proverbs 3.34. And James also quotes it in James 4.6 in his epistle in the New Testament. But, but Peter's speaking of humility like a garment to put on. Like, clothe yourselves with it. Put it on, Peter's saying. Put on humility. This word picture in the scriptures, it takes our minds back to John 13, where Jesus, as he stoops to wash his disciples' feet, the, the lowliest acts of service in the ancient Roman world you could do, as he stoops to do that, he puts on, clothes himself with a towel around his waist. It's the same language here. Humility in the scriptures is a willingness to stoop the knee and serve one another. To elevate someone else at the expense of your own self-interest. You know, elders humble themselves to shepherd the body. Well, how does humility, how, does, how do we as a church humble ourselves towards one another in the church? Well, main point here. As the church humbles themselves, trusting their God. The church humbles themselves, trusting their God. Humility in the church is ultimately rooted in our trust in God. Verse 6, look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so purpose clause, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It's trusting God with your status, the timing on your life and your lot in life, you know, oftentimes humbling ourselves, thinking of others instead of ourselves, it comes to great cost to us. I mean, oftentimes that carries with it consequences of being overlooked or serving in menial, menial roles in the church. 
of not getting ahead because we chose to not to promote ourselves, but promoted someone else and their good, carries with it a potential consequence of having others bypass you on their way to the top. It's taking those potential consequences, humbling ourselves, is taking those potential consequences and laying them at the feet of Jesus and trusting him to raise us up when he sees fit. Now think about how this plays out um, even in, in the context of the local church in our relationship with social media. Now hear me when I say this. Uh, I'm not against all forms of social media. Like, I'm not against it. Um, I'm not on social media. I was at one time. I'm not anymore. But I, I do think social media can be used for good in many ways. So actually, it's a neutral thing. It's really what you choose to do with it that makes it good or bad. So social media is not a bad thing. I'm not against it. Nor am I against anyone on social media. My wife's on social media. I love her very much. All right, And she's very active on social media. Um, maybe more too active. But we can talk about that later. Um, but much of social media is rooted in self-promotion. Right? Much of its foundation is making much of yourself. We even create terms to describe those uh, that are more present and active on social media as influencers, right? Social media influencers. And there's so many teenagers, and I, I saw this a lot in my previous church, but so many teenagers in our day that have hopes and dreams that strive to become a social media influencer, to promote themselves and their thoughts and their opinions so much that hundreds and thousands of people begin to follow them simply to hear what they have to say about, you know, fabric softener or the latest restaurant or Disney or fill in the blank, whatever. And this has even come into the church, even among church leaders. You know, I was once, uh, I was once strongly encouraged, all right, strongly encouraged, not told, but strongly encouraged to create a social media account to then begin building my brand as a pastor. I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, what are you talking about? Like, are you being serious right now? You want me to build my brand as a pastor? Like, what are we talking about right now? Like, what is pastoral ministry? Like, what is this? It really bothered me, um, as you can tell. <laughs> but what are we doing here? If shepherding the sheep entrusted to our care as leaders, as pastors, has now become an avenue of self-promotion and brand building. That is using the body for my purposes. Abusing you so that I can get ahead and make much of me at the expense of you. And whenever I reach that platform, whatever that is, I will leave you to go somewhere better. And bigger, because I have furthered myself at the expense of you. And that is evil, man. That is wicked stuff. And there is no place for that in the church. None. At all. You know, when I was on Twitter, I used to always laugh when I would see pastors retweet people who quoted them. Like, what is that? <laughs> like, what in the world are you doing right now, man? Like, what is this? It's just bizarre. And it bothers me so much because it's so much against what we're talking about here. So not all of us, elders and congregants alike, all of us are called to put on humility 
towards one another. To stoop the knee and serve one another, not promote ourselves at the expense of one another. We trust that God will raise us up in his sovereignty when he sees fit. Even if that raising up does not happen until Christ comes back or we die. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. Let's make it about him and how we humble ourselves before one another. And then Peter here gives us three ways we trust God in humbling ourselves. Three ways. First, we trust God to care for us. Trust God to care for us. Verses 6 and 7. Let's read it again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burdens on the Lord. And he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, casting our cares upon the Lord and dependence upon him is a, a way of demonstrating humility. You know, prayer for things we need from the Lord or, or ways we desire for the Lord to act is demonstrating our desperation for him to provide what we need. We're humbling ourselves and saying, I cannot do this. I need you to do this. You know, when we forsake to come to the Lord and ask him for our needs, we are in essence expressing our own self-reliance. He is not bothered by you coming as often as you need to ask for whatever it is you need in accordance with his will. You know, Jesus promised us in Matthew 6 that if he clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air, that he will clothe and feed us, church. That he would take care of us. So in humbling ourselves, we express to God and to others ultimately that it is God who cares for us, who provides for us. He has given us everything we need in this life and also everything we need spiritually in Christ Jesus. And it's trusting him to do as he says he would do and take care of us. We are taking him at his word and he is faithful to us to care for us when we need him to care for us. Second. The church humbles themselves by trusting God to protect us. We trust God to protect us. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Mm. Now, Peter's discussed being sober-minded and watchful already many, many times in this letter. We've talked about it a lot. But in other words, he's saying, be aware. Be aware of what's going on around you. Be aware you have an enemy. And this time, we're to be aware that this enemy would love nothing more than to destroy us, to devour us. And our enemy here is described as a roaring lion. I mean, think about, so... I've seen a lion in the zoo, but I've also seen one on National Geographic and, you know, uh, Animal Planet. Um, but think about how a lion goes on the attack. All right? You know, normally if you've got one of those shows pulled up, it starts with this, like, flock of antelope or zebra that seem to be living this peaceful life in this nice little Saharan, you know, place in Africa. And it starts off very pleasant, but then you get a shot of, like, the lion in the reeds. 
like hiding, right? Just, just waiting, watching, biding its time until it gets its kill. And then when the time is right, it pounces, it comes out of there. And it's just chaos, right? It's just chaos. The, the herd just flees. The zebra antelope just scatter at the movement of the lion, the pursuit of the lion. They begin to run away. And you see the straggler of the herd begin to kind of fall further behind from the flock. The injured one or the weak one or the young one, the lion goes after that one. He pounces. He devours it. You know, we could spend all day unpacking this metaphor and its bearing on believers in the church. This enemy is a lion. I mean, there's so many things we could draw out of that, just off the top of our heads. But suffice to say this, if you find yourself right now isolating yourself from the church, seeking to do this Christian life on your own for a variety of reasons, maybe, maybe you feel you've done something not worthy of the love of God, restoration of God, pulling away. Maybe you simply are becoming too busy with life and other things going on that you're pulling away. Maybe you simply just want to live a life contrary to holiness and you're pulling away from the church. But if that's you, based off this text, I want to say two things to you. One is a word of warning. Your enemy, the devil, may soon be pouncing on you to devour you. The most safe place a zebra or antelope can be in the midst of chaos and confusion is in the middle of the herd, surrounded by other zebra and antelope. The lion's not going in the middle. He's going to the one that's falling behind, the one by himself. So don't isolate yourself. Don't pull away, for it may be only a matter of time before the enemy devours you. It's warning number one. But my second word is this. We have a lion looking to devour you. We have an active enemy in this world that wants to destroy us. But at the same time, we have a shepherd named Jesus who has promised to fight that lion for you. You know, oftentimes this fighting happens through the shepherds in the church that he's entrusted to your care. The body and the weapons of our warfare are not rocks and stones and sticks and swords or anything like that. It's prayer, feeding you the word, reminding you of who you are in Christ Jesus. You know, we spend a lot of our time at elders meetings praying for you, pleading with God to deliver you, to fight for you, to remind you of who you are in Christ Jesus. Those are the weapons of our warfare. That's what God has given us to overcome the lion. And Christ, our good shepherd, he has defeated the lion. And the means he's given us to walk in that victory are the people of God surrounding you when you're weak, when you fail, and making sure you don't fall too far from the flock. When you fail, it's not the time to run. It's the time to press in. It's the time to get close, to go, I blew it. Remind me, church, of who I am in the gospel. That's when you need the people of God. It's in the low moments, not the high moments. You have a real enemy who wants to destroy you, but you also have a loving shepherd with many under-shepherds and the elders who desire to see you flourish in Christ Jesus. I could go way more into that, but we're running out of time. Third, third, we trust God to deliver us. We trust God to deliver us. 
We humble ourselves by trusting him to deliver us. Verses 10 and 11. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter, once again, here at the end of his letter, reminds us of two things. One, your suffering is temporary. And two, deliverance is coming. Deliverance is coming, not simply, and not simply deliverance, but restoration of everything you have lost. You know, throughout this letter, Peter has established that suffering is real, that it's difficult, it's potentially devastating. He's talked about fiery trials and being persecuted for our faith in Christ Jesus. He hasn't shied away from denying the painful realities of living as a Christ follower in a broken world. He hasn't painted some pie-in-the-sky theology, some name-it-claim-it false gospel rooted in trite false notions that if you just believed more, or if you just prayed more, or if you just gave more, God would take away your suffering and give you great blessing in this life. He has not said that. But Peter knows the only remedy to suffering is the return and reign of the one who will put an end to suffering. It's our living hope, our resurrection, our joy inexpressible, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, our faithful creator. On and on we could go using all the language he's used throughout this letter to describe our God and King, Jesus Christ. And in the midst of great suffering we find ourselves in now, or maybe in the midst of great suffering that awaits us tomorrow, he says in verse 10, when Christ comes in glory, he'll restore all things you've lost in this world. All the joy you lost in this world, all the flourishing you lost in this world, all the sacrifices you made in this world, you didn't think anybody noticed. He'll restore all those where he's the king. And he has power and dominion to see all this restoration come to pass. Prophet Joel says it like this, and we'll close with this. Prophesying a day when the Messiah would come, Joel chapter 2, he says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain is before the threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Peter would have us as elect exiles in this world. He would have us cling to a hope in our living hope. A hope that endures for all of eternity. 
and to long for the day, church, when we shall never again be put to shame. May we wait in humility for that day that Christ will usher in for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Apostle Peter. And thank you that the words he recorded 2,000 years ago still ring true for us today. I thank you that in his life we didn't see a guy who had it all together. We didn't see an Apostle who never stumbled or faltered or failed, but we saw a guy who knew the depths of his sin, but knew the mountains and mountains of grace that come from the hand of Christ Jesus. You are so kind to us. How many times have I sat around the metaphorical charcoal fire to have you remind me, oh God, through the Spirit of your love for me and your grace towards me. And you never get tired of building that fire. It's unbelievable. Thank you, oh God, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.